You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from the book of Jonah, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. As I told you, a little bit strange ending to a book, also much cattle. (laughs) We'll need the Lord's help. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, here we have a record, quite interesting story of your servant Jonah that has been of great power and benefit to your people through the ages. But we realize as we come before you to this moment that we're asking not just to understand this literary story, but we're asking to have an encounter with you and to know this not just as a great story, but as your word. And not just your word generally, but your word with real and living application for our life today. And so, Father, as we come before you, we pray now as your church, that you would send your spirit with power. We invite you to convict us more deeply of our sins and to, Father, in your kindness, open our eyes to see Christ so that we'll never be the same. Speak to us through this, your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you find yourself in the city of Edinburgh in Scotland, I don't know if anyone's been there or been there recently, and you're strolling from the castle uh, to the palace on the so-called Royal Mile, you'll encounter a pub there named Deacon Brody's, a little tavern. It's named after a man named Deacon Brody, no surprise there. And he was an 18th century uh, man of high society in Edinburgh. He was known for his extreme dignity and generosity. He became a city councillor. He sat on, essentially acted as a judge on behalf of the city. But what really rose him to prominence and uh, to fame, at least initially, was his skills in cabinet making. 
He was so phenomenally talented at cabinet making and dovetail joints and things like this uh, that he grew to great prominence uh, as a leader in the union of people that wor work with wood. And he also became even more famous for his ability to create very unique locks, to fix locks that were broken, but to create unbelievable and unique locks for the high society all around Scotland. His locks became uh, what he is known for, and if you visit Brody's, uh, Deacon Brodie's Tavern, you will see on one side a picture of him holding keys in a lock. The tavern is situated in Edinburgh in the place of his former shop and the place of his former residence. Now, as I said, Deacon Brodie was a member of the highest of society of Scotland, a man of extreme generosity, and the children remember him as being a wonderful gift giver. Um, he lived quite the lavish lifestyle, but he wasn't purely selfish about it, and for that, he continued to gain no notoriety and renown. But unbeknownst to most people in Scotland, uh, Deacon Brodie lived something of a playboy life in the evening. He had various mistresses and even kids that uh, he was not well connected with, and he had an extreme addiction to gambling. And no one knew of this except for a handful of other people in Scotland who saw fit to keep their private lives sort of hidden and silent in the evening. But in 1788, uh, as he was continuing to grow in renown, he was becoming a man of great reputation, and he was appointed, uh, as I had stated, in the, to be the city councillor and was involved in the courts. And because Edinburgh had, had these string of robberies, small robberies, not enough to cause a panic, but serious robberies, Deacon Brodie was part of a solution, which was to uh, create and even help to build a gallows in the city of Edinburgh to take care of and to offer a very real and tangible threat to those who were robbing the various homes around Edinburgh. But in 1788, much to the surprise of many people, and as the story goes, many people even refused to believe it for a long period of time. Authorities eventually discovered where Deacon Brodie's wealth came from, and it wasn't entirely from his honest dealings with his clients related to his locks. Whenever he would create a lock for the high society in Edinburgh, he would make a duplicate, a wax copy for himself. And he had just enough self-control and wisdom and patience to hold on to these various keys and properly sort them so that when people would least suspect, he would go back into one of his old locks, steal from one of his former clients, and uh, all, all, all done unbeknownst to anyone in the city. And what became most shocking to the town is this man who was known for his unbelievable generosity, starting in sort of the Carpenter's Guild and making his way up to a city councillor and representative of the union, this man of great renown. The children loved him, very generous, also had an unbelievable dark side in the evening that more and more became uh, public. And you might know the story, those of you who play Jeopardy or things like this, or Trivia Nights. You might know that Deacon Brody's furniture, some of it's still around today, but one, a couple of pieces of his furniture ended up in the house of one Presbyterian Scottish man. And as he got older in 1886, this man who daily looked at Deacon Brody's furniture wrote a novella wrestling through how he understood the dilemmas of the life of a man like Deacon Brody, this man of great renown in public, but dark secrets in the evening. And for those of you who know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Robert Louis Stevenson writes his book as something of a fictional reflection over the collective frustration and shock that existed in Edinburgh for years after Deacon Brody was actually hung on the very gallows that he created. Now, why do I share this? 
you know, just so that you can learn a fun fact. I mean, sure, the sermon's bad. You can people can ask, did you learn anything? You can at least say, yeah, I learned a bit about this guy, Deacon Brody. There is a Deacon Brody pub in Ottawa. It'll make for a great story if you ever find yourself there with a uh, group of business contacts. Um, but why do I share it? Well, I think Robert Louis Stevenson, as he's writing the strange story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as he's reflecting on the life of Deacon Brody, he's actually dealing with the very thing we see here in our prophet Jonah. In a fiction way, he's trying to wrestle through, how is it, how is it that a man used by God and of great reputation can lead another life that is so dark, that is, that is so filthy, so disgusting, so horrid, he can cause such tremendous pain in the city. I share it because the dynamics that existed in Deacon Brody's heart, the dynamics that caused such an impact that years later Robert Louis Stevenson would write this book, and the dynamics that would make this book a bestseller are the dynamics we're seeing exposed in the heart of Jonah. And if we listen closely to what God is saying to us in this word today, it's dynamics we're going to see in our own heart. It's dynamics we're going to have to learn to wrestle with. So here's what I want to look at this morning. Um, We're going to see first that Jonah is going to confront God. And in how he confronts God, we're going to see his Mr. Hyde come out. We're going to see his Deacon Brody dark side, evening side come out. And I want to look at the way in which Jonah's confrontation exposes this dark side first. And then I want to look at the invitation God extends to end this book. So first, let's look at the way Jonah's confrontation against God reveals and exposes this dark side in himself. Well, where do we see this? We see this in Jonah's furious response. Um, Now listen, if you haven't ever read the book of Jonah, I know not everyone who comes to church is Christian, and not everyone is as familiar with the Bible, especially these Old Testament stories, but uh, the people of Nineveh were a wicked people. They were, they, they were infamous for skinning people alive. In fact, it was a skill that they worked to develop very quickly, and they would hang these skins outside of cities. They were absolutely a horrendous foe. And it wasn't just that they were evil people generally, but they were an evil people to God's people. They had caused so much trouble in the nation of Israel at this particular time, and they seemed to be against God and all his causes. In a sense, they were God's apparent enemies because they wanted to do so much damage to his kingdom. And... In this book, God asks Jonah to go to this wicked people and to preach about his kindness and his mercy and his compassion. And Jonah, upon hearing this call, flees the other way. And God, in his kindness, confronts Jonah. He sends a storm as he's fleeing from the responsibilities God has asked of him to take on. And in the storm, he's eventually thrown overboard, tries to kill himself. The Lord won't allow that to happen. A fish swallows him somehow mysteriously as the story goes He survives in this fish. He comes to his senses. He's vomited back on dry land. And if the story couldn't get any more crazy than that, he then finally decides, I guess I probably should obey. You know, at this point, I can't even end my own life. The Lord is so watching over this thing. And so he goes to Nineveh, and we looked at this last week. He preaches a sermon that's essentially judgment, five words in Hebrew. And everyone in the nation bows their knee and says, the God of Israel is the true God, the God that we must follow, everyone from the peasant all the way to the highest of king. In chapter 3, verse 10, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, we read, when God saw how the people turned, he relented. He turned from the judgment that he had planned for for Nineveh. And Jonah is furious. That's what the first four verses of this book are about. He is furious. And in fact, there's all kinds of buried irony here in the Hebrew story. It's a masterfully written Hebrew story that, uh, that, that is, is drawing upon irony. We actually read that when God relented from the judgment that he had planned for Nineveh, that this was a great evil, actually, quite literally, an evil, evil 
uh, to, to Jonah. This was horrendous. It's interesting that when God looks down at the evils of Nineveh, he only sees them as evil. But when Jonah looks on the evil, his perception of what God has done for Nineveh by relenting from judgment, he sees this as exceedingly evil. What God chose to do in Jonah's mind is worse than, in his mind, what God, how God saw the sins of Nineveh. I hope that makes some sense. And Jonah is furious. He's angry that the Lord delivered Nineveh. And this leads to this prayer of confrontation that exposes his heart. And what do we see in this confrontation? We see this. And listen closely. Inside the heart of the best of us, even a prophet of God, can be a problem can be horrors so of such great and enormous proportion that they can bring about an utter uh, hatred of the God who's extended kindness and called us to the things we're doing. Let me say this another way. Inside the heart of Jonah, there is something more dishonoring to God, more troubling to God, than all of the sins of Nineveh. I'll, I'll take it from black and white to clear. There is something inside Jonah's heart that is more dishonoring and troubling to God than when God looks down from heaven and sees these Ninevites mocking, skinning human beings. Let that sink for a while. I'm saying these words with utter seriousness. Now, how could I say that? How could I say that? A, a, a culture of such great evil. And here's a man who's just frustrated that God doesn't judge him. Well, listen, this passage is telling us that it is possible for us to sin against the grace that we have received and in some ways, sinning against that grace we've received is so much greater than sinning against a grace never received. There's something inside the heart of Jonah that is more dishonoring to God and more troubling to God's plans than even the sins of Nineveh. We see this in Jonah's complaint. We see this Mr. Hyde side, this dark side of Deacon Brody coming in to the way in which Jonah's prayers immediately turn in on themselves. Read his prayer again. You can see it in the first four verses. Uh, in your bullets, and you could circle words like me and my and I. Eight times, at least as I see it in this translation, the prayer is all about Jonah. He's a man who's turned in on himself. And this is one of the ways to know and to see when, when this Mr. Hyde is starting to surface. When the sun is going down and Deacon Brody's looking through his old key collection, deciding when he's going to rob somebody. Because everything turns in on our set. We can turn in about, and are only concerned with our own needs and the needs of ourselves. Listen, maybe to make a quick application so you hang with me, what am I trying to argue or what am I trying to say to you here? I'm trying to say that Jonah, this great holy man of God, had something inside of himself that was more toxic and detrimental to God's plans for the world than the greatest superpower of the day. And that same dynamic exists in your and my heart today. It does. And the way you can know that you are taking this Jonah turn, that the, that the Mr. Hyde is coming out, as you start to see Mr. Hyde exposed in the way that you pray. There's nothing wrong with praying about yourself and for yourself. But there is something wrong if that is the only thing you pray for. A cheesy pastor I once heard used to say, prayers aren't about your story, but they're about God's glory. If I was a better preacher, I'd say it like him, and you'd say, Amen. This is how you can see, and this is what is being exposed in Jonah's complaints. The world is for Jonah's benefit. God's world that he has created for his own glory is to be used. All the resources are to be used for the glory and good of Jonah. And friends, if you're in a place in your life 
maybe going through tremendous pain, maybe going through tremendous uh, anxiety, frustration, just like Jonah. If you find, if you find during that season that all your prayers are only about yourself, frustrated with the way that God has chosen to rule over this world, and your prayers are not about God's greatness and his renown and his glory and his goodness, watch out. That dynamic, that Mr. Hyde, you might find yourself sinning against grace. And the sin in your heart, the Mr. Hyde in your heart, remember, and the eyes of God is more disgusting and more destructive than any of the sins the world out there could possibly commit before God's eyes. This is a great warning. But it's not just that the complaint turns inward. We also see Mr. Hyde coming forward in the way in which Jonah begins to use God's word and his character, but twist them towards his end. Where do we see this in the complaint? Well, Jonah references one of the most well-known pieces of scripture from Exodus 34, when God made himself known to his people at Sinai. And, And in this particular passage of scripture, we learn that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Moses knows this verse. He's got it memorized. He's got it quoted. He can recite it. He, he's reciting it in Hebrew almost assuredly. Here he is, this holy man of God, using God's word. But how does he use God's word? He uses it in a way to distance himself from God's plans and from God's purposes. In fact, he's quoting from Exodus 34, not the first time God's people received the Ten Commandments and this relationship with God, but the second time after they had made for themselves a golden calf to worship, and the Ten Commandments are destroyed, and God has to, in His grace, give them a second chance. God reveals Himself as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And now, now Jonah uses these same words, these words of tremendous comfort to God's people, showing forth God's grace to them in a time of tremendous needs. He uses these same words to say, I knew you were like that, and that's why I fled. He uses God's word to keep him at a distance. The As we see in this passage, he is using Scripture to avoid changing. He's using Scripture to justify his decision and his evil, rather than to let Scripture change him and confront his evil. This is a very, very, very serious sign. A very, very serious sign that Mr. Hyde is coming out in your life. When you can justify all the behaviors that you're doing by quickly quoting Scripture, but you can't remember the last time Scripture challenged and changed you. Watch out. Watch out. I don't like kicking people while they're down, and I share this with great caution. But it's on the Toronto Star, page A1. It goes even below the fold, full picture. Pastor of Toronto's third biggest church. Series of affairs. Abuse of power. I'm thinking most of you know the story. If you don't, it'll be all over the Toronto Star lately. I don't get a kickback. I wish I did. They have paywalls, so it would be nice. But what do we read in the story? It's a devastating story. A devastating story about a pastor who's made a great impact in people's lives. Third biggest church in Canada, as I stated. Streamed all over Ontario. And yet a series of accusations have come out against him, some of which he's acknowledged as factual, but in the particular story the star is running today, you'll read a quote from one of the victims. And this victim will allege, and we'll leave it an allegation at this point, that the pastor said this to her in the midst of their affair. He said, what we're doing isn't right, but God is permitting it. 
And God will find a way to make redemption even against things, even for things that are against his will. He does it all over the scriptures. He told her that she represented Jesus' sacrifice and forgiveness to him, and that God brought her into his life as a gift. Friends, this is an allegation. As I stated before, the pastors owned up to at least a certain measure of the sin. But watch out. Watch out. This is a sign that there is something in your heart that is starting to bubble up. This Mr. Hyde that the Lord wants to expose. And rather than it being exposed, you use the scriptures to justify your own behavior rather than change. And don't kid yourself for a second. It wasn't because this guy had a master's of divinity and great skills as a preacher, which made him so talented at twisting the scriptures to defend his behavior. That skill set, it exists in each one of us. Mr. Hyde flares up its head. There's something in each one of us so deadly and so dangerous, so destructive, so frustrating to God's plan, so heinous in the eyes of God. Something in each one of us who call ourselves the people of God. That when God looks down from heaven and he sees this flaring up and coming out, he's more repulsed by it than he is by any sins of the world. You must understand this. You must understand the seriousness of it. Mr. Hyde flares his ugly head and Jonah would rather die. He's in utter despair. He doesn't want to live in the world that God has made and he doesn't want to live in the world uh, of the God who had made himself known to him graciously. He would rather die or kill the God who made himself known to him, then see himself in the eyes of his enemy. As we look at Jonah's complaint, we see the dark side of what it means to be one of God's people. And I wonder, and I'll ask it again, I hope I've said it enough, do we still believe that there is something in our heart right now? Do you believe it right now, that there is something in your heart right now, in this chair, at this very second, that could utterly disgust and anger God more than the worst sin that someone is committing in the city out there. You see, until you're utterly confident of what sin does and what you're capable inside of you, until you are utterly confident of that, until you've owned up to that, until you've acknowledged that, you will be useless for God's mission, I assure you. Why would you? You'll you'll join with so many other of God's people to become incredibly judgmental because we are not like those people. We're not committing sins like that. But when we acknowledge, you know what, we're not committing some of the sins like that, but my goodness, we're sinning against grace. We're committing some sins that are heinous in God's eyes, worse than the, the, the actions of the Assyrians, worse than the worst of behaviors that might go on in our city on a Friday or Saturday night. Until we realize that that ability to sin exists in our life and we have a propensity for Mr. Hyde to flare up until we daily acknowledge that that's a reality that we need accountability for and that we need to challenge, we will be utterly useless for God's mission. We'll be another judgmental church looking down our, our, our noses at the city, making a God who turns out to be unrecognizable from the God of the Bible. That's what we'll become. But until we realize this dynamic that exists inside of us and until we take it as serious as God is telling us to take it through this warning through Jonah, until we do that, It'll be utterly useless for the plans God has for this city. We'll be part of the problem, not part of the solution. When you finally begin to realize that the only thing that distinguishes you from the people who don't know Christ isn't the severity of your sins, because you can sin against grace like Jonah. You can sin even worse. 
But when you finally realize that the only thing that distinguishes you from the people who don't know Christ is that they haven't received grace, and that's the only difference, when you get that, then you'll be utterly powerful to join God in the mission of making himself known and his grace known through the world. I got wound up, and I don't know if I was as clear as I should have been, but I hope you see my first point. Jonah's complaint shows that there is a monster within each one of us, and that we cannot minimize it, and we cannot move past it. We cannot mature out of it. It exists in each one of us, and we will be utterly worthless for mission until we acknowledge that that monster is real. Let's next look at the invitation, and I'll have to move a little quicker, but let's look at the invitation that God extends. God, after hearing this complaint of Jonah, how does he respond? Well, in verse 4, he does something that's utterly unbelievable to me the more I thought about it all week. And I sat with it quite a bit. He asked Jonah a question in verse 4. Do you do, you do well to be angry? Or is this, a good, is this good to you? Is this a good idea to be angry? Then what happens? Well, Jonah's clearly not a fan of God's answer, so he changes his setting. He moves to the east end of the city, out to the east end of the Danforth. And in verse 5, <laughs> what's he doing out there in the east end? I, I can't help but believe he's probably thinking... Well, I'm going to find a place to get a nice view of the city just in case in 39 days God actually says, ah, you know what, they're more wicked than I realized and I'm going to destroy them. So he's sitting in the east end of the city just sort of looking over the city. And what does God do next? Picture with me. Picture this with me. God's servant has given his resignation letter to the Lord who called him. And what should our Lord do? Should he sideline the servant? Should he say, you know what? It's been nice working with you. You're deeply going to regret this, but I'm going to find someone else who will go to Nineveh. I'm going to find someone else to be my prophet. I've had enough of you. You're fired. It's over. What does God do to Jonah? He extends an invitation. And maybe we could say it this way. In extending this invitation, he's extending an invitation to Jonah and to us to rediscover God's grace again. That's what God is doing by asking this question in verse 4 and asking the question later on. He is extending an invitation to remember that he doesn't give up on his people. He doesn't. He does not. He extends an invitation. Verse 6, Jonah's on the sideline. He's angry. He's overheated. What does God do? Out of God's kindness, God conspires and makes a plan behind Jonah's back That a plant might grow up and offer shade to Jonah. What is God doing to Jonah? He's offering him grace, undeserved favor. He's giving him protection from the sun. Why is God doing that? Because he is working in this world to relentlessly pursue his people that they might receive grace again and again and again. He does not give up on his people. He does not. He does not sideline them. He does not. This is not the God we find in the scriptures. Who is like our God? He's just seen a whole nation come to deep repentance. Wouldn't it be a great time to switch teams and to say, man, (laughs) that old prophet was terrible. But the good news is I bet there's a prophet in Nineveh who's way more, way more excited to be obedient, to follow my plans. But that is not how God works. And listen to me closely. This is an important principle. God is just as committed to your transformation as he is to the transformation of all the nations. He's, listen closely, and I want you to personalize this. God isn't just committed that people come to know Jesus Christ and submit to him and say that he is Lord. He is just as committed to your transformation right here in this church as he is committed that the gospel might go out to all the nations. That's what we find here. 
He doesn't give up on his prophet. He doesn't give up on his people. That's the larger story. Who is like our God? He extends an opportunity for Jonah again to experience undeserved blessing. And how does Jonah respond when he gets this nice shade over his head? He says, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted. I mean, there's a, there's, the, the, this, this man is finally getting it. God has been kind to me. He gives this shade over my head. Praise be to God. This plant grew up incredibly quickly, and now I'm protected from the shade. And you'd expect at this point that Jonah finally gets it, that he can thank God for the good things that have come to him, and he can turn to God in his times of need, but obedience to God is all that matters. But in the face of this gift, he doesn't do that, and so what does God do? He continues to pursue. He extends another invitation to rediscover his grace. He sends this worm to cut this hole in the plant so the sun beats down on him. Then he sends this east wind to torment Jonah. Why does he do this? It's an invitation to re-experience his grace. It's a huge object lesson. In the midst of the plant withering, we have another dose of irony. The man who was in the bottom of the sea vulnerable to drowning, who just longs to get to dry land, has now found dry land, and he's in the driest of dry land, and he's about to die. And he cries out to the Lord in anger, why would you let the worm eat this plant? Why would you allow this? Why would you let judgment come on this plant? It was serving me. Shouldn't you have protected this plant? Wasn't it good? And it's right then and there that the Lord has him. He has Jonah in this big object lesson. And he's saying, Jonah, Jonah, don't you see it? You care for this plant because it provided you this temporary shade. Don't you see it, Jonah? You lost it when the plant received judgment. Don't I have every right to care for a city that took many generations to build up? A city with all kinds of art and artifacts that I appreciate, I enjoy, music being made, things that are beneficial to me. Don't I have a right to be merciful on the city, and not render judgment. What's what's Jonah to do? Jonah here is confronted with the very heart of God. The heart of God who does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Hear me quickly. He does not. I don't care what all the the placards say on the corner of Dundas Square. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He's merciful in patience. He's constantly re-extending grace, not just to God's people's enemies, but also to God's people. He's inviting them to consistently and daily and weekly and monthly and yearly re-experience God's grace. Rediscover God's grace afresh that it came to you. This is the invitation that Jonah gets here. And what's incredible, incredibly interesting is we just don't know how Jonah responds. Don't you think about it? Look how the story ends. It ends with this weird phrase about, and the cattle. I don't know if God's a beef guy. If you're a vegetarian, I don't know. Don't get all hung up about that. What does Jonah do? I don't know. We don't really know. Does he live happily ever after? Does he become obedient to God? Does he say, aha, I get it now. I get it. Nineveh's like the plant. I get it. You don't long for the judgment. Oh, and I get it. Our people, my people, have consistently and repeatedly experienced your grace when you could have destroyed us, when you could have got judgment. I get it. I don't know what happens to Jonah. And in some senses, that's not the point of the story. Because the narrator is calling the people of God, the people of Israel at this time, but he's also calling you, he's calling me to examine ourselves.
do we understand how bad this problem is that we have in our heart? And do we understand the relentless pursuit and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to us weekly, daily, hourly? And if we understand that, the book ends with one grand mission. That's a mission to you, whether you're a student who's about ready to go back to class or you're in your retirement and you're not sure who you'll be interacting with this next month. If we've received this grace, then we ought to reflect it. There's an invitation that the book ends with that we as God's people not turn in on ourselves, not use God's word to be insular and justify our own behaviors, not transform God into an idol that he is not, but we God's people see ourselves for who we really are, see God's kindness for what it really is, and turn. It shouldn't surprise us that our Lord Jesus Christ tells people and his earthly ministry that they long for more signs, and he says the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. It shouldn't surprise us that our Lord Jesus Christ comes to this earth, and rather than saying, I would rather die than experience these people receiving forgiveness, our Lord Jesus Christ says, I will die so these people can receive forgiveness. I will. I will. This is the heart of our God. It's the heart of our God that led his son to hang on the cross. It's the heart of our God at the resurrection as this news spreads throughout the world and to you and to me. And the only invitation left is for us, if we believe this story to be true, to join God in his work and spreading this grace to anyone who will hear. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you. We thank you that probably even within this week, unbeknownst to us, a dark side of our heart flared up, and you were gracious to us, unbeknownst to us, that you chased us down, unbeknownst to us. That you, in your kindness, interrupted our plans because you're gracious to us, not because you hate us. That there are things in our lives that are blessings that are like this plant, and there are pains like this worm, but all of them, you promise, are going to be used for our good, as, you, as is recorded in Romans 8. And so, Father, we as a church expect, even this week, to taste afresh again your kindness to us. The way you will work throughout history to invite us again to taste of your grace so that we can be a people who never grow judgmental and cold and calloused and hard, but a people who are very sensitive to how quickly we'll run away, but who are quick to come together and join you in worshiping and saying your kindness is constant, your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for the way in which you were kind to the prophet Jonah and the ways in which you've been kind to us. We're not taking your kindness for granted. We ask, Father, protect us again this week and use us to be a blessing to the city that you've placed us in, a city with far more people even than Nineveh. Would you help us to see your heart and join in your heart by spreading this good news all around the city, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.